I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Book Off, a literary podcast with a difference. I'm Joe Haddo, and I'm joined by two stalwarts of the writing world, both journalists turned authors writing in the thriller genre. Erin Kelly, Sabine Durant, welcome. Thank you for having us. Hello. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Good. We've, we haven't quite sorted out the... Uh, um, fancy dress for Friday yet for your kids, but... No, so at the time of recording, it's historical London Day on in two days' time which is when every child in every borough in a London school, every primary child anyway, dresses up as an influential Londoner, which is at one point, A, you realise that actually now it's time to forego the Amazon boycott and B, um, how very paternalistic London history is. (laughs) So we were up very late last night looking at English heritage plaques for London women of note. Well done. Well, oh. Sabine and I are here. If you want to bounce any ideas off later, aren't we, Sabine? Okay. We can. Yeah, sort of we had three Amy Winehouses last year, so it doesn't have to be that historical or <laughs> <laughs> that primary appropriate. Um, do you two know each other? You've come across each other before, I imagine. Yes, lots. Yes, we're definitely in the kind of crime world together, aren't we, Erin? Yeah, and we have the same editor, <laughs> and that helps. Ah. And similar taste, I think. I think probably yes. Yeah. Yeah. Great. In fact, we do. We are actually the same person, but yeah. <laughs> we're just writing on this. A bit... Is there a mirror here somewhere now? Or I, you know... She's much younger than me. I'm like the old. <laughs> version. <laughs> um, often I find we've had friends, author friends on before, and that sometimes makes the competition a little bit sort of more fierce. Do you think that you're going to be lenient because you know each other, it doesn't matter later, or do you think you're going to get really competitive? Like? No, I've been looking for an excuse to take Sabine down for years. <laughs> <laughs> that was said with real menace there, Sabine, so... <laughs> Uh, yes, no, I'm just... Um, yeah, I just wish we didn't have to do that bit at the end, really. I know this goes against the whole spirit of the show, but I don't see it as a competition. No, I see it's it as not. A, it's, as a yeah. book swap opportunity. It's totally exactly. yeah. not a competition. Just like book club. I just yeah. try, every, t- every episode, I try and sort of build it up like it's a real big thing. It's not, you know. You need more music. Dun, 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 yes, dun, exactly. Dun, dun. Yeah. Just a bit of tension, you know. I was just saying that I thought that when you listen back on the podcast that um, everyone sounds pretty relaxed until it gets to the book bit and then their voices get really high and squeaky. <laughs> <laughs> you're waiting to see if, if you're going you're gonna to well, do the will. same thing. There you yeah. go, I'm just preparing the way. <laughs> um, Sabine, I loved Under Your Skin. Um, that was your first in, in the sort my of first thriller, thriller yes. genre. Um, and I remember The Guardian describing it as chick crime. I know. Well, oh, God. They liked, people like to put labels on them. And I was just like... No. What really? Okay, yeah. anyway, okay. Chick lit, chick lit. Is it? Oh, no, that's the other thing. That was the that's previous the other thing. thing, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, what are the other ones? Are other griplet. The, griplet. Um, criblet is this year's griplet. Yeah, houselet is the new. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, what's ha- what? Criblet Sorry, and houselet are one and the same. Are, these yeah. are property based yeah. psychological thrillers. 
in house. I mean, it's quite hard to write a thriller without a house in it. Yes. <laughs> Unless it's true. a kind of uh, survivalist, you know, that somebody gets dropped in the jungle and... Uh, um, but yes, uh, Criblet, Houselet is um, so that's our house by Louise Candlish, the house swap by Rebecca Fleet. Mm. Off the top of my head, there, there will be others because there's a new Lucy Clark that I think is set in a house in Cornwall, in which the house, the Cliff like, House, Amanda Jennings, yeah. the Simon Lelich one that was was that from last yes, year, called just the house. I that think called the it? house, so you yeah. know that's yeah. lent itself. So the houses of the yeah. new girls. I think right, maybe okay. yeah, this year for a while. Yeah. And then we'll see what 2019 A lot of holds. front doors I'm seeing on front covers at the moment. A lot of front doors and blinds and windows. And... <laughs> yeah. Rebecca, of course, it's first house lit. Absolutely. Yep. Criblet. Criblet. Rebecca mm-hmm. was the first one. It was indeed. Yep. Yeah, very much so. Yep. Um, now that you've mentioned it, now I'm thinking of these front covers and actually, yeah, I have seen a lot of those coming mm-hmm. through, so you, you're onto something. Um, but I'm not going to call it chick crime, and I don't, I don't want to get you. into that. Um, I want to talk about Take Me In, which is, which is your latest novel. Um, so this is about a young family on holiday, Tessa and Marcus with their son and, it, and, and this stranger, Dave. So tell us, just t- tell us the setting. So the setting, it sets off, it begins with this young couple on holiday with their baby, and you can tell their sort of tensions. It's the first day of the holiday. We've all had that kind of terrible, you're all exhausted from the journey. Um, you realise it's not going to be a holiday because you've got a small baby. They're lying on a beach. The wife wants to, go and, wants to go and change. The husband's sort of distracted, tired, and takes his eye off the child, who seconds later he falls asleep, he wakes up, he can hear shouting and screaming, and the boy is in the water. And another guy on the beach, another holidaymaker, has waded in and is rescuing him, and indeed does rescue him. It's not too much of a spoiler because it's the first chapter. Um, and then becomes, you know, they feel very indebted to him, uh, and then, but he comes more into their life than they feel comfortable with. Because they see him, they start seeing him everywhere. They start seeing him everywhere. They're not quite sure if they're imagining it mm. or whether he wants to be their, you know, whether he does actually want to be their friend, whether they owe him, how much they owe him, whether they should have paid him, whether they should have, you know, done more. Um, so they come back to London and he, you know, begins to become the sort of, I don't know whether it's a catalyst or a metaphor or some kind of something that represents the cracks in their marriage and in their comfortable lives. What's great is that you create questions for the reader and the whole time we're thinking, blimey, what would I do? What what should they do? You know, we're sort of putting ourselves in that situation. Do you think about these scenarios just out of nowhere or do you get inspiration from real events or is it a mixture of everything? A bit of, I suppose a bit mixture of everything. Yeah. I think I had that idea about a child, I'm probably on holiday with small children years ago and... Um, seeing other people, you know, particularly if you're out of season and you see other people on the beach, you kind of, you're very aware of each other. Yeah. Um, and also just that, you know, that thing when you have a small child and life is incredibly difficult, you're not maybe seeing things through very clear eyes, you're over, you know, you haven't slept enough. Um, so, yes, I suppose that maybe things in the paper. I mean, people for my first novel said, oh, you must have been influenced by Madeleine McCann. Oh, no, the last one, actually. Not the first one. <laughs> Lie With Me was my like, most recent one. Lie With Me. Um, that one, people, everyone said, oh, is it the Madeleine McCann or um, the Needham case? It was about a missing child. But actually, I don't know if it was particularly. It was just sort of these, there are these set things that you fear as parents and as people. And yeah. it's just one of those, I suppose. Did you, um, having read it, Erin, and, and as a as a mum, were you, were you sort of get, getting all that similar thinking of when you went on holiday for the first time with a small child? Yeah, and in fact, I took my kids uh, to Lanzarote over Christmas and I thought of it more than once. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just incredibly easy on a big beach to lose sight of what happens. And I think that's that's the hook for Take Me In, but it's not what keeps you reading necessarily. What I loved about the book was the way it 
dissects all of the kind of social mores of the um, status anxiety among the middle classes. And Dave is not the same class as Marcus and Tessa and doesn't necessarily aspire to be, actually. And that's actually part of what they can't compute as much as anything else because they're so aspirational. Yes. And, um, and it's such a big part of who they are at work as well as in their marriages. I loved, I loved that. I loved Marcus's meltdown at work. I thought that was really brilliantly done and really too relatable. He works in comms. He's a, in sort of PR, so it's all about the kind of sorting other people's issues and crises. Well, his and, own is building. Well, his and own building. is building in the background. Yeah, that's the, that's the bit I enjoyed most writing, actually. Is just, it? Yeah. In fact, there's a scene set opposite where we're filming in the Riding House Cafe where he's having lunch with us with one of his clients and... Anyway, yeah, but they're very bad parents. I feel like I've been saying that. They're really rather <laughs> bad people. But I quite like writing unpleasant characters. Is it you... easier? Uh, is it easier? Well, I say it's unpleasant characters. I like writing characters that are morally very dubious or morally grey. You don't really know where you stand with yes. them. Yeah, and yeah. I like the fact that you can... I suppose what I'm interested... I suppose what I find challenging and what, what isn't easy is trying to then have sympathy for them. So you're in the heads of people who might not respond to the world in a way that you want to but or would like to think that you do i think that's one of those things that you're allowed to do if you get it right yes you? like accents in dialogue you know if you're good at that then go for it because that's where the most interesting books yes uh, that's where the heartbeat is of them but um it's we we often get feedback don't we about likability especially in our heroines particularly, particularly which i find yeah. quite tedious and i i always i often wonder when somebody picks up one of our books what what do you expect from a psychological thriller yes you, know, you could you could go and read a a Maeve Binchy book, if you wanted to... Actually, no, Maeve Binchy does complex characters as well as The Best of Us. But, you know, there, there is yeah. plenty of um, light romance that if, if you want friendship and likability... The cookie, likeable, likeable yeah. slightly cutesy... Yeah. I always find that a particularly bewildering yes. criticism. But I mean, yeah. you don't buy, read a book to make a friend. That's the thing I find mm. always baffling. Why would you think that you're going to? And, and even in books that aren't thrillers, I think it's more interesting to have a character who is, you know, not one thing or another, mm. like the rest of us, flawed and... But, uh, yeah, it's particularly interesting with women, actually, female characters. Men, it's funny, you could just get away with it. But my last it's almost novel... as if there's a double standard. Yeah. It's really strange <laughs> that, Erin. funny, that, isn't it, you're saying? <laughs> so what, you, you, you get that sort of response from readers, you're saying, specifically about female characters? or? Uh, I was I've going to say, it. yes, readers maybe in the editing process mm. further back down. Right, OK, so it's a, uh, mm. it's a thing. Well, it's a thing that I've noticed on Amazon, actually, that, mm. kind, that, that sort of area of feedback so not not in the editing process not with my editor necessarily or my agent or my early readers but I will occasionally have well I didn't like this book because yeah. I hated the narrator and well I've hated some of my favourite narrators yes exactly yes. You know, yeah. uh, <laughs> I wouldn't true. want to spend 10 seconds alone with um, Cathy Earnshaw for example but no, not exactly. that she narrates but you know or, or yes. anybody in Wuthering Heights and yet I can't leave the book alone so yeah. you know there are I, th I think um, it's it's not a universal reaction, but it is it is a pattern I've noticed. Yeah, I think it might be slowly changing. I think we might be. Oh, I hope so. Yeah, we're getting there. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> we're getting there slowly but surely. Um, and Erin, we sh we should talk about um, your latest book because, in a way, that's moving on from female characters and male characters and, and perspectives and things. He said, she said, of course, which came out last year, and mm -hmm. the uh, paperback is out um, and did incredibly well and is doing incredibly well. Bestseller. Best yeah. seller, as by the speak. way. Yeah. yeah. And in fact, as we talk, that's right. It took me ten years, but I got there in the end. <laughs> <laughs> because obviously, Broadchurch was a was a huge success. Um, but this book is is just brilliant, and 
Um, for those that are listening who may not have got to it yet, just just take us back to that to that summer of 1999 where it's set and Kit and Laura. Yeah, so Kit and Laura are a young couple who witness a rape at a festival celebrating a total eclipse down in Cornwall in 1999. Um, it's the same eclipse that I saw partially over a rooftop in Soho and it got very slightly darker. But Cornwall, the West Country, was the only place you could see that eclipse or the only place you had a chance of seeing that eclipse in its totality. And just after the sun comes back out... They stumble across a man attacking a woman and Laura is so sure that what she saw was rape that a year later, when she is the star witness at the trial, she tells what she thinks is a little white lie to get what she thinks is the right verdict. And we meet Kit and Laura in the present day when we know that after the verdict, something even worse than the original assault happened and that she and Kit have had to change their last names and that they live in hiding. And it's about the fallout from... Laura's lie and we understand as well that there's another eclipse on the horizon and we know that the past is going to catch up with them. And it does. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> I could, that's when I needed some dramatic music yeah. there as well. Uh, yeah, it most certainly does. Um, and how are you feeling? I mean, with the, with the success of this one, obviously, it's uh, it's a good place to be, I imagine. It's a lovely place to be. <laughs> I think probably at this point you're supposed to... Uh, downplay it but I've enjoyed every single second No, don't downplay it (laughs) Gotta go with it I've had the most fun year of my career Um, I've taken the book all over the country and I have had such interesting conversations with readers It is the kind of book that makes you talk and that was deliberate Mm. Uh, It was uh, It wasn't inspired by a single event but I didn't have to look too far for inspiration The, um, The accused in the fictional rape case is a young man of great privilege whose privilege is played up in court. And the alleged victim is a vulnerable young woman whose word it's very easy to discredit. And I so I finished writing the book two years ago. So this was pre-Brock um, Turner, I think, the college rapist who was convicted of a horrific attack. And in the judge's summing up, he, didn't men- he barely mentioned the victim and focused instead on Brock Turner's career prospects being damaged. It was pre-Weinstein, it was pre-Me Too, it was pre-Times Up, all of the things that are now part of a conversation that won't go away, for good reason. It's incredibly long overdue. So um, I I wouldn't say it's been a pleasure talking about the subject time and again, but it's been... It's turned out to be a much more timely novel than I knew it would be when I was writing it. I think crime fiction can be a real Trojan horse, actually, for the big issues, for people who don't necessarily want to engage with the news, because I, for one, am taking a step back from the news at the moment because there is too much noise in my head and we're all going to die. Um, you know, with <laughs> nuclear capabilities and protests. And, you know, it's just too much, so I've decided to give yeah, myself w- a lovely summer. I will have summer. that biscuit, actually, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I've decided to give myself a lovely summer away from it, but I think crime fiction at its best can be a Trojan horse for the big issues with people who don't necessarily want to engage with the news in a traditional way. They're not necessarily following all the stories on Twitter. They've had enough of the rolling news of newspapers um, and fake news has disillusioned them. But actually, it's it's the way to get people talking mm. without sitting somebody down and saying, I have an issue for you to discuss. I don't know um, if either of you have seen or read Big Little Lies, but there was a domestic violence plot in there, which I think probably did more to further the cause than mm. a decade of think pieces in The Guardian or guest presenters on Women's Hour because the nuance and the subtlety that it was presented with was so skillful and so clever. And had you been sat down and said, you're going to watch a, uh, documentary, a, dra- about, a documentary yeah. now about how DV is really insidious and how even very ostensibly successful middle-class women can be completely flawed by this, then it wouldn't have got anything like the traction that a 
really well acted drama, really well written drama did. Mm. So that's what that's one of the things that I I enjoy doing. With, that's that's one of the reasons I'm attracted to my genre. Yeah, that's so interesting. When Mark Billingham was on uh, this podcast um, a few episodes ago, and and sort of said a similar thing. Really, he was like, you shouldn't write with an agenda, and yet you know there it, there is a way that crime fiction specifically does. It can. What I do find going forward is that my tendency is to see an issue coming out and then I have to be really careful to keep my own politics back and not turn it into a polemic and get mm. off my soapbox and actually tell a story and be truthful to character. And I think when I approach it that way, the the issue and the message will come through. It leaks through like theme always does. But a couple of times recently, um, the book that I'm going to write next as well, I know what it's about and it could turn into an issue novel if I'm not careful. And I've got to really watch myself to put the brakes on that and not... Because otherwise you've got the subtlety of somebody with a pair of dustbin lids as symbols. I'm going to tell you something important now. I'm a lefty liberal author and here's what I think you should think. And that can that will of course backfire, and it won't it, it won't come to life on the page. So as long as you're conscious of that and you can rein yeah, it back, yeah. But it's that's a, it's right, a thing that it? I didn't think about certainly before I wrote before Broadchurch actually, because mm. Broadchurch was the first book I wrote with a child murder victim. Of course, it wasn't my story, which meant that I didn't feel like I had personally murdered the child, and that's maybe one reason I was able to do it. But I um, would you have found it difficult to write? Would you found, find that a difficult subject matter to write? Originally, as an original. I think so. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Um, but I, that, there was a shift there, partly because I spoke to so many of the um, advisors for Broadchurch when I was writing the novel and the short stories that came with it. Um, but I'd, I'd oft, maybe I had a body count of about 15 people in my books up to then, and it hadn't bothered me. And now all of a sudden I'm super conscious, probably because I was writing about, um, in He Said, She Said, about a crime that has survivors for the first time. And, yeah, there's definitely been a, a shift towards greater responsibility mm. that in one way is a great thing but in another way I have to be careful not to let get in the way of a rollicking read mm. and a ripping yeah. yarn which is what I, what I still want to bring to the table above everything else. Of course, yeah. yeah. And Sabine, are there certain issues or characters that you can't write <gasps> write about like a, like oh, a like child? Can't, can't write about. Yeah. Um, yes, I think I, I... Actually, to be honest, I find any kind of gruesome crime quite hard to write about. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, I think that I kind of... I'm. You know, the, there are crimes in the novel, and there is novels, and there is um, you know a suspense element. But increasingly, I'm sort of aware that actually there that it's actually there are there are serious crimes in all the books. But I, the, what interests me is not the crimes, not mm. the it's the feelings and the emotions and the reasons for things happening, rather than the actions or the. Are you remotely interested in pr- procedural forensic? Because I couldn't care less, and I find that, <laughs> I find myself con- so okay. So you've got somebody here, and you know this person has to go, yeah. and you've done a strangulation, and you've done a stabbing, and you've done a shooting, and you've done a defenestration. What I just don't care. <laughs> you know, how am I going to get rid get of this person? person? What haven't I done yet? You know, go through the papers. Who's mm. and th- that's the thing. Most murders are so banal. The, yeah. the Agatha Christie thing, where you kill somebody with a, an icicle and then melt it in the fire. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want to go down that road no, and make exactly. it gimmicky, but I, I find that so yes, it's the arduous. psychological reasonings and the yeah, exactly. You know, the, that I suppose what interests me is that tiny little we think I don't know if it's tiny or not, but you know the imaginary tiny line between thinking that you might be able to kill someone and actually it's killing the moment, someone, isn't yeah, it? Thinking mm. oh I could kill you, oh, I could kill you. They turn on a second. That's what I've enjoyed about them. It certainly um, take me in is a split second. Yes, that just destroys yeah. running out of fingers on how many lives it impacts. But, um, yeah, that that's exactly 
my thoughts. And there are some crime writers who do it so well. I'm, I also don't like reading or watching graphic violence, and I'm not interested in describing that. I was very conscious to describe the alleged assault in He Said, She Said. I think there are maybe two sentences. I really didn't want to linger. To dwell on it. No, on I agree with at that. At all. Yeah. I just get in, get out. Yeah. Get some blood on the walls, but do it in the... Yeah. You know, do it. It's, it's about the only place... I'm a minimalist, actually. But I think, again, in He Said, She Said, it's this lie, this little white lie, which is sort of nothing. And yet, even as you, even as she's thinking about whether she's going to say this thing, there's a sense of implications of once you've lied once um, and what does that lie mean? And also then what the repercussions of that lie, of course, the rest of the book is just from that tiny thing, which is sort of yeah. a small thing. It is just a small thing between saying what she says and what she doesn't say. And it's a great director's trick, isn't it, to show something gruesome off screen you see it's actually mm. the reaction of something so you'd yes. because perhaps the the viewer would not be as scared if you tried to make something gruesome mm-hmm. unless you're using all this cgi uh, yes, so it's, it's the, a similar thing i think with, it's the fear the of violence it's the the fear of things spiraling out of control that is always more interesting than the violence mm-hmm. itself yeah i mean it is odd i think how scared i mean i was thinking i'm what am i scared of you know there's that weird thing if you're in a room with the when it's dark outside and you're lit inside. That is so scary, isn't it? What are you scared of? I mean, you're scared that someone's <laughs> going to come bursting through the window or that you're being watched. or That's sort of, you know, this, and I suppose it's the instinct to be scared of being in a lit room with a dark garden that interests me more than the fact that there's somebody hiding in the garden they might, might be about. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Before we go to the book off, mm-hmm. I just want to talk about the internet, social media, and the fact that you're going to get off it for a bit. And well, I really have, have to do it. it now because I've said it here, Yeah, uh, you've I? said it here <laughs> yeah. now. I mean, other than to maybe, you know, promote this podcast on all of your social yes, media channels. Um, I'm, but still, th- I'm still hanging around on Instagram because it's you, all pretty okay. pictures and no politics, so I'll definitely <laughs> go for it there. But you have yeah. you have made a decision to just just come, come off it for a bit? Yeah, a lots of reasons. Room in my head, eye contact with my children. Um, <laughs> I've got a book to write. That's quite important. That is important, yes. And I find, I find that um, I actually do enjoy Twitter, and that's the problem. Um, what do you enjoy about it, Heron? 
Well, often it's funny. Uh, and it it changes my mind all the time. And I think that's really important. I, I, the internet gets a lot, or social media certainly takes a lot of flack for making us more polarised. But I actually find that the older I get, the more I see nuance in everything. And it it shakes me up out of my bubble. You know, I don't have a particularly interesting life. I've got two little kids at home. I work on my own in a room. I it's very, very easy for me to be completely cut off. And I know that Twitter isn't real life, but it does it does get me out of my postcode mm. and my mindset. And I think, and it, um, you know, and I do, I, I get my news from Twitter as well, which uh, probably is one reason I get super anxious and I come off it. <laughs> and I've made friends on Twitter. I get so many book recommendations from Twitter. Mm. I have a handful of people now whose taste I trust implicitly. And whenever, you know, if they're reading something, I just head out and copy them. And it's made my reading more diverse as well. And that's another luxury problem, bring on the world's smallest violin. But I get sent, I would say, almost every book that's released in my genre. And I love reading and I like supporting as many other authors as I can because I know how much it means when those quotes come rolling in. But by the same token, I feel that that's almost robbed me of my reading autonomy. And so I don't any longer have the privilege of walking into a bookshop and being surprised and getting somebody to hand sell me something because everything's been marketed at me. But there are tweeters like Naomi Frisbee and Alice Slater um, and uh, Bethany Rutter is another good book blogger, Charlotte Heathcote at The Express. There are a handful of people, Sam Baker, um, Alex Hemmonsley, all women, who, when, when they're reading something and they choose a book that they really like, I sit up and I take notice. Mm. So um, Naomi Frisbee in particular has got me out of my bubble of reading about women like me, which I think is really toxic to a writer. You know, so many of the, the psychological thrillers published at the moment are about middle-class women in early middle age in some kind of jeopardy. And I have all those things without the jeopardy, I hope, unless there's, <laughs> unless there's something I don't know that you can see behind me. Um, yeah, and it's, you know, it's funny and it's a laugh and it stops me being bored, but it also has ruined my ability to concentrate on anything. And a lot of the... A lot of the people on there are very angry and sometimes it's really important to take a step back from everything horrendous that's happening okay. and uh, and just forget about it. I know that that's how Kate Bush works and she is my model for all things in life. So As I don't she think should she's, be. I don't think she's watched the news in about two decades. No. And it hasn't done her any harm. It certainly hasn't. Yeah. And she's still... And she's not on Twitter either. <laughs> no, she's not. And she's one of the most creative and most yeah. wonderful genius people yeah. there is, you know. So but it, it is a very authory, bookish um, community, Twitter. That's the thing, isn't it? And I think... There's a sort of. Is nice... that true? Is that not just the one, the, the Twitter world that you've chosen to inhabit? That's what, what ang- makes me anxious. Well, it, well, that's an interesting point because, quite possibly, but I don't, I don't really think that the book industry has embraced Instagram quite like it has with Twitter. No. I think Twitter's the conversation, isn't it? Between yes. and yes, we all follow similar people mm. in the industry or people we like that we then follow their friends, but. Um, but it is. It feels like it's a bit of a conversation, albeit in a bubble, mm. and that's why I am on it, and that's that's why I sort of mm. look to as well. But, but that, you mentioned, or we both we've both used the word bubble, and actually that was something really important to me when I was writing. He said, she said, every time that I felt myself going too far down because I wanted to. Oh, there's an element of doubt, you know. It's not a who done it; it's did he do it or not, and I wanted to make sure that I gave equal weight to both parties. Every now and then if I found myself getting complacent or I thought that I was only writing to readers like me, I would just pop the word Ched Evans into the Twitter search engine and every time I would be astonished to find that there were more voices supporting him than declaiming him. 
And this is before and after his conviction was overturned. And I think we can all agree that even if his conviction was overturned, he didn't exactly cover himself in glory mm. that evening. And, I, you know, it's a, it's a good litmus test. We, you know, tw- book Twitter is a bubble. Yeah. And if you, there are certain trigger words that you can type in and you can just find out how rampant misogyny is. Gamergate's another one that will open your eyes to, um, to a world that just doesn't turn up in my time certainly not in my timeline so but you know it's a useful tool it gets it gets me research done so quickly as well i am um, <laughs> when i wrote the court scenes for he said she said i sent out a very quick tweet saying does any is anyone who knows a bit about the english court system just give me five minutes of their time and a lawyer and author called neil white crime writer um said yeah what do you need to know and six months later the poor guy was still fielding daily <laughs> questions from me but the court the court scene is what i'm proudest of now about the book actually because only after he had been through it and said, "You just," I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but you know, you know, this isn't actually an episode of The Good Wife, and that our barristers don't flounce around up and down uh, and address the jury and judge constantly like this. Um, oh, but we want yeah. them to, though. I know. Well, but I'd, I'd sat through two trials and read loads of transcripts, and I still had missed the whole point of the justice system and how and how the drama in that moment is not actually in the barristers' performance, but it's in how they, it's in Laura leading up to the lie mm. and how she purges herself and you know it took it took a fresh pair of eyes to do that so in twitter saved me a lot of public embarrassment it's probably the most valuable tweet i've ever sent <laughs> just that one just quick that line one that you yeah, sent out yeah. yeah um right well it's uh, it's time for the inevitable it's time for the book off and uh, this is where you each get three minutes as you know to pitch a book that you love that you think we should all read um and it's also the bit where Sabine's voice is going to go a bit higher. That's what we all... <laughs> I'm going to go very squeaky, very, very fast. <laughs> um, now, I've got, as you can see, my props here. Uh, I've got the bell and I've got the horn. So, um, Sabine, which one would you like to, to, to tell you that your time is up? Uh, I think I'll go bell. You're going for I'd the like bell. bell, OK. Absolutely fine. Erin, that means you've got the horn, oh. OK, as it were. <laughs> uh <laughs> <laughs> That's the only reason I chose that. <laughs> and you get to go choose heads or tails. Heads. It is heads, first or second. Second. Okay. Like a coward. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just before you start, Sabine, tell us the book that you have brought. Um, I have brought Hangover Square by Patrick Hamilton. Okie doke. So you've got three minutes on the I clock. I know. I just have uh, to. Well, you'll hear that. I'll hear that. Okay. <laughs> do you need? To, do you want to see it? No. Want to see your countdown? No, I'll just stop. I'll just bit, literally like an exam. I'll, just, <laughs> I'll be told to put my voice uh, down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've been really rude and cut, I've cut some people off in their, in their absolute prime on this. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. If I get near the end, can I just do notes like you do in an yes, exam too? Yeah, like yeah. Just words. Just a round up. <laughs> no, I'll run, out, I'll run out of things to say. I had to do a 30 second speech the other day. I almost died in preparation. <laughs> you don't have to use all your three minutes. I'll just say that. Okay. Okay. But okay. so feel free to bring it in if you think you've said everything. Okay. Um, but here we go then. Three minutes over to you. Well, the main reason that I chose it just today is that quite I only read this book really rather recently, um, and the history of picking it from the shelves is one of those. It reminds me of so many books, particularly as I was growing up, which is that it's one of those books. It sat on my parents' shelves between kind of H.E. Bates and, I don't know, the Tropic of Capricorn or something. And I just, one of those spines that I would have looked at for years. And the other day, well, not the other day, the other year, my mother wasn't very well and I was in their house and I wanted something to read. And I plucked it from the shelf and started reading, expecting it to be rather dry because you can't see, but it's an orange penguin, it's very battered. 
Um, and I knew that he'd written uh, Rope and Gaslight, but I didn't really know anything else about him. And this one I hadn't actually really heard of. Anyway, once I started, I couldn't put it down. It's completely and utterly gripping. You're in the man's head. It's in really mainly narrated in the third person, but from the point of view of this man called George Harvey Bone. And you're just sucked in. You're, you're kind of trapped by his language. You're trapped in his head and you can't bear it to finish or to find out what's going to happen, but you just can't put it down. It's written. It was written just at the beginning of the war and it's set in 1938 to 1939. So it spans the Munich Agreement to the outset of war. But it's not about the war. It's mentioned occasionally, but really it's about... Um, but it's sort of, it's in the background, the sort of the dread, the sense that something extraordinarily large is going to happen. But you're in the head of this man, who we know almost from the first page has got some kind of neurological sort of twitch in his head, um, something that's a bit awry. And in that sense... You know, it's a bit like a very modern books, like that Elizabeth Healy about um, Elizabeth is missing, or the when I, before I go to sleep. You know, you, you, he doesn't trust himself. He knows that sometimes he has these sort of fugue states, these strange moments in which he loses grasp of what's happening. Right at the beginning, he tells us that he's going to murder this woman. He's going. He's made the decision to murder her, and all the way through, right from the start, you're thinking, is he going to? Is he going to? When's it going to happen? She's called Netta. He's just this sort of sense of doom and dread. He is the setting is London. It's, it's a very London-based book. Sets between London and Brighton. He's and he's brilliant on scene. He's brilliant on. Um, am I coming to the end? Oh my god! I haven't nearly finished. <laughs> I've only just started. It's brilliant. The note bit. Really good writing. Um, amazing. I just haven't described anything. <laughs> Can't I do it again? You got five seconds. Oh no! It's just brilliant. Read it. Oh, that's a Disaster! <laughs> That's an absolute disaster. There we go. Bloody hell. Yeah. I said nothing. Oh, I thought you said quite a lot. I thought you said quite a lot. I want to read it. You had me at murdered oh, woman. Bloody hell. Yeah, you had, yeah. Well, <laughs> you had me at word murdered woman. Yeah, quite. God Almighty! I literally thought I was about thirty seconds in. Thinking, what the fuck can I say to fill the time? Fucking <laughs> hell! I'm never doing this again. <laughs> I'm never doing a podcast, ever. <laughs> Luckily, I don't think if you do another podcast, you probably won't be timed and put on the spot quite like I have. Oh, God, that's humiliating. <laughs> oh, thank God it wasn't my GCSE English. Anyway. Um, well, that, I thought that was pretty good. Thank you. I'm, pretty I, you good. Know. Normally you say, fantastic. <laughs> I, I, I thought I was very good. Fantastic. Um, let's see if Erin can uh, match, match yeah. up to the three minutes. So tell us the book that you're going to talk about, Erin. I have chosen No Night Is Too Long by Barbara Vine. Right, so it's over to you. Three minutes on No Night Is Too Long, starting now. OK, I'm looking at the cover now, and on it it says it's a dark, watery masterpiece. It's abused with sexuality. That's a review from The Times. Um, I'm going to tell you the plot, and then I'm going to tell you why I chose the book. Tim Cornish is a really very good-looking creative writing student, and the book starts with his confession. Two years ago, he killed somebody, and we know that that murder is yet to be uncovered. We find out in the first few chapters, so this isn't much in the way of a spoiler, that he had an affair with a tutor at his university called Ivo. And we also know that there is somebody else called Isabel. He is living at the time of writing on his own in a three-storey, half dilapidated seaside house in a town that is a very thinly disguised version of Aldborough in Suffolk. And we um, we understand that there was somebody called Isabel in his past as well. And actually what has happened is that um, 
This affair that Tim has had with Ivo has gone horribly wrong and on a trip to Alaska, Tim met somebody called Isabel and Ivo did not come home. We know that Tim is haunted what by he believes is Ivo's ghost or rather by his conscience manifesting as Ivo's ghost. Um, I love this book for a million reasons, but the reason I chose it is because Barbara Vine is the pseudonym or a pseudonym of Ruth Rendell, who was, of course, best known for her Wexford novels. And I worry... Now, she was probably the most influential writer in my bookshelf, certainly in my career, along with Du Maurier and Highsmith. But I wonder if she is going to have the longevity and the legacy, rather, that she deserves. And these books, the Barbara Vine books, are in a different league, as far as I'm concerned, to the Wexfords, which are superior procedurals, but they are still detective fiction with all the restrictions of the genre that entails. I think this reads like a Losty and McEwen book, and I think that it's literary snobbery that meant she was never nominated for the big heavyweight prizes. And that's partly a chip on my shoulder because, as Sabine will tell you, anybody who writes any kind of book with a mystery plot at all will at some point have been told that they can just sort of stay in their crime ghetto and not dare to look up. But actually, I think that this, the, the Vine books don't seem to be something that get talked about now. And I am on a one woman mission to redress that. Um, I, it's beautifully written. It's got an amazing sense of place. Of course, there's a central mystery, which I've already introduced. Um, I spend a lot of time in Alderborough because my mum lives very close to it. And the Suffolk landscape is really beautifully done. The parts that aren't set in Suffolk are set in Alaska. And so you've got two very different seascapes. Um, the plot is ingenious. The way Tim does his murder, having earlier in the podcast said that I don't like a novelty murder, um, this is super, super clever. But I also think it's worth reading because... The novel, when it was first published, got a lot of stick because Tim is um, a gay man who has an affair with a woman. And I would be interested now to see what the queer community make of it now that bi erasure is a thing, because I think that the backlash against the book that it had at the time would be different in today's climate. Oh, very good. Oh, that's, not, that's not long at all, is it? Really isn't, really is it? Like you, yeah, I thought that goes. you were talking for ages. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't get to talk about how I really love the ITV drama because for once they left the shagging in. <laughs> it really makes me cross when they film something and they take out all the sex. When they made my book The Poison Tree, they told me they were going to make it this really noir, sexy thing. And in the end, you've got like three seconds of somebody sitting in bed with a duvet up to their chin. <laughs> no, that's no really good, cross. is it? No good. So they left yeah. the sex no in, in the... Yeah, in the it's a really good adaptation. ITV drama with Mark Warren and um, somebody else who's very handsome and whose name I've forgotten now, which is terrible. But Mark Warren, brilliant. What I love is you've both brought copies of the books and they're both sort of a bit battered and sort of looking loved. Yes. You know, yeah. it's, and they're both penguins, aren't they? They were sort of penguins. Yes. Like yeah, this, this yeah. one doesn't have the orange front. It's got a really cheesy cover, actually, of a, a pensive yes, Adonis it is a bit, isn't it? <laughs> um, looking at an iceberg, which really, <laughs> really undersells it. But um, yeah, it's a, and one of my few books that I think I bought this new in 94. Gosh. So it's, it's not a second-hand book that's... Gone, gone to seed over the years. It's a book that I, I did this. You, you I broke did, this by. I tattered and dogged these pages. It's got your myself. fingerprints all over yeah. it. And and um, Sabine, your your book has is that one you'd read previously and thought to reread, or did you actually pick it off the shelf for the first time because you saw? About it a couple of years ago, I picked it off the shelf. Yeah, yeah I'd never, I'd never liked the look of it because I mean, there's this interesting thing about covers is that actually that does look a bit naff, but maybe it does does do something and that it pulls you in whereas yeah. the Hanover Square is just rather dry and austere looking because it's the classic orange and cream different times different, different times, times. Yeah. different times and they weren't looking to get stocked in Morrison's way they, they weren't they didn't care <laughs> yeah there was no Tesco <laughs> had you read 
other books by no, him? No, and I still haven't. I right. mean, yeah. Okay. But um, apparently they are brilliant, and so I should. But um, no, I think it's uh, it's incredibly modern in the way it's written, and it's incredibly um, tantalising just being in the head of this person that you know. Whereas Barbara Vine writes about. She's very much third person, isn't she? That's the third person This narrative? one is, is it not. It's three different first three person different. narratives. Oh, that's interesting too. Mm. But there's lots of Barbara Vine books, are there? Yeah, it's about 15. There was a period brilliant. in the sort of mid-80s to mid-90s where she was just on fire. Dark um, Adapted Eye is one A Dark of my Adapted favorite. Eye and A Fatal Inversion in the House of Stairs, all of these books. Um, and they just don't seem to... Feature certainly when I talk to readers my age and younger, they don't seem to feature in their landscape. No, it's interesting that she wrote. Yeah. I suppose she wanted to have two different, very different personas, and I suppose she was very successful as Ruth Brendel. So yeah, it was like this is what it's almost like you feel that that's what she was doing commercially, and this is what she really wanted to write. I don't know if that's true, but that's the sort of impression. Yeah, well, this is what she was doing when she was writing the books that I really wanted to read. That we wanted to read. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So you're a big Barbara Vine yes, fan, anyway, to be yes. Yeah, um, gosh, but honestly, I thought both of those were really great pictures, and uh, oh, I love them. I love them both, and uh, I'm trying to get. I'm being swayed over here. Can you see? <laughs> <laughs> um, I've, you need just, to read my. You need to find out. It's about a whole full of trash now. Well, <laughs> in a way, you've you've sort of dangled the carrot now, haven't you? Yeah, because I haven't ma- told you anything about to make it. us be like, oh, well, I want to go and. <laughs> Find out what's in his head and why did he murder this person, you know. Um, God, she knows about suspense. Yes, she does. She doesn't <laughs> give anything always away. always them wanting more. <laughs> exactly. And she's done it in her pitch, goodness me. Um, and Barbara Vine I haven't read. I literally haven't read any. So that's bad of me well, you as must. well, isn't it? So just do both. There you go. Job done. Job done, isn't it? I mean, it's why don't I just sort of do... Both of those together. Do you know that's the second draw I've given. Oh, I'm getting the... really lenient in my old age, aren't I? It's going to undermine the sake. whole format. But we can still be friends now. So yes, we OK, well, I'll do, it, I'll do it in the name of your friendship. Thank you. And they obviously are both brilliant novels. Um, so, Sabine, your new novel is published in June? Yes, end of June. Uh, take me in. Uh, let's take me in. So is that, does that mean you're sort of all about that book at the moment or have you had I'm to all about start about another? nothing. Right. <laughs> I'm honestly sitting here listening to Erin thinking she's finished the next one <laughs> and then she's even got an idea for the next and I'm supposed to be really writing the next one. Does it make you feel better that the one I've just finished was a year late? It does make me feel okay, better. Good. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you're much more prolific than me. No, I'm very lazy and I'm really enjoying doing... Um, I'm supposed to be on Twitter. That's what I'm spo- my, you're my meant campaign to be on Twitter. Is supposed okay. to, yeah, I'm supposed to be doing things like that and publicity and things like that. Yeah. Well, Mainly dabble. In the garden. You can do Twitter in the garden. And uh, you already mentioned you're working on that, that new novel, so we can expect yeah. that next uh, year, do you think? Yeah, I think next April. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, well done for getting off social media. But um, Thank you. To, to go back on just to talk about this, though, would you? That would be really, really <laughs> helpful. Um, thank you for coming in on a lovely sunny day and sitting in a dark room with me. It's been uh, thank a pleasure. Thank you for having us. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank guys. you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 